our topic today is not just simply about COVID-19, but what the heck happened? We're going to talk about Twitter files, censorship, and a story that, quite frankly, you'll never believe. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense, and innovation. It's urban. It's rural. It's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Well, I'm very excited to have today with us two preeminent scientists in the world, quite frankly, in public health. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is a professor at Stanford University Medical School. He's a physician, epidemiologist. He's also a health economist and also a public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases and vulnerable populations. And then we have Dr. Martin Koldorf. He's a professor of medicine at Harvard. He's a biostatistician and epidemiologist with expertise in detecting and monitoring infectious disease outbreaks and vaccine safety evaluations. And if that was not enough, he's also a senior fellow at the Brownstone Institute. And quite frankly, they're also not only smart, but they're also my friends. So I'm delighted to welcome them here today. Thank you, David. So good to be here. I'm very excited about this conversation today. Our last conversation together on Leaders on the Frontier it's hard to believe was back in September 2022, and that's some six months ago, and everything has changed. And uh, I don't think that's an overstatement, um, but it, it, it just at a, a glance, would you say that you've we've learned a lot looking back the last six months alone? I mean, I think the last six months have made clear a number of things. Uh, first, the collateral harms from lockdown have become more and more evident to the point where they're just undeniable. Uh, in particular, the harms to children have become abundantly clear uh, with study after study showing deep learning losses, especially in poor children. The evidence from the from the poorer parts of the world show uh, poverty increases in poverty, increases in 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 and uh, in, in malnutrition and, and even frank starvation that that we haven't seen in a generation. Um, we, and we're starting to see uh, the health effects of the lockdowns even in in richer countries as uh, as as the you know the, the cumulative effect of delaying basic preventative medical care are, are taking its toll. What about you, uh, uh, Dr. Kaldorf? What what would you say in terms of some of the things that you've observed that have changed? Well, if we look at excess mortality, uh, most Western countries have now excess mortality that's not due to COVID, but due to other things such as the lockdowns, uh, uh, cancer screening that didn't happen, uh, and so on. Uh, diabetes care that's not wasn't as good, uh, lack the cardiovascular disease, mental health problems. And if we compare the Western countries, the, the one country that does not have this excess mortality, the lowest excess mortality from 20, 2020 to 22 is Sweden, which did not lock down in the same way as other countries did. Wow. So I think a lot of people listening would be kind of shocked by that. So I just want to make sure we understand that. So you're saying that the mortality of COVID-19 wasn't so much the issue. It was the response to it. Is that right, Martin? Yes, correct. Uh, the lockdowns did not help 
uh, with COVID-19. It might have postponed the problems a little bit. But Sweden has one of the lowest COVID mortalities, not the very lowest, but one of the lowest. But when it comes to excess mortality, where you look both at mortality from COVID and mortality from lockdowns and other other uh, uh, pandemic measures, Sweden is, is the lowest. So if so, you would say, Martin, that if the, the facts are looking back now over the past three plus years, that Sweden did it right. Is that the conclusion? Sweden got it right, and most other places got it wrong. Wow. And so what I find fascinating about this is we talk about the Great Barrington Declaration, and that that was the place where you came up with this statement. You, uh, Martin and Jay, and also uh, Dr. Sunita um, uh, Gupta from Oxford University came up with this incredible statement uh, some years ago, October 2020, as I recall, that basically said what? What can you can you refresh your memories about what that statement said and why did you write it, uh, Jay? Well, the Great Barrington Declaration uh, was premised on two basic scientific facts that were clear from the almost the earliest days of the pandemic. One is the very very steep gradient in risk of mortality from infection. It's really older people that this disease is deadly for. I think it's still the case that something like 70, 80% of the people that have died from COVID infection over the age of 70 or 65. Uh, and th that's so, and whereas for children, the risk was very, 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 very low relative to other risks in their lives. The second scientific fact, again, undeniable and, and well known in, even in October 2020, is that lockdowns are tremendously harmful, especially to the poor especially to the vulnerable, especially to, to children. Uh, we knew that for a fact. We knew that from decades of social science work, from medical work, that uh, social isolation, uh, closing schools would have tremendous negative consequences on the health and well-being of, of the, the poor, vulnerable, and, and, uh, and, and working class populations. If you combine those two ideas, that you get the Great Barrington Declaration. Focus protection of vulnerable older people because the disease is quite deadly for them. Um, meaning not like forced isolation in quarantine camps or something crazy, but rather uh, resources and, and, and an orientation of public health to provide support so that uh, even vulnerable older people could find ways to isolate uh, themselves during times of high disease spread. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with, with, uh, where, 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 whereas um, for younger people, especially for children, lifting lockdowns. Uh, the, the Great Barrington Declaration corresponded to our standard pandemic management plan that we've followed for a century of respiratory virus pandemics successfully. It's really the lockdowns that were a tremendous departure from our traditional practice. So in that sense, the Great Barrington Declaration was just a restatement of the old ideas of how, should, how to do pandemic management that had worked for a century. Exactly. So, Martin, when you reflect on the Great Barrington Declaration, do you feel, frankly, vindicated? I mean, you recommended um, all three of you as well as almost the million people, leaders in healthcare that signed it, essentially best practices. This is the plan that, that um, we follow. Do you, so do you feel vindicated now? Yeah, what a surprise. Uh, 100 years of public health wisdom turned out to be correct. <laughs> yes. Um, there's actually one example from Canada. Uh, the, the Haldeman Norfolk Health Districts in Ontario implemented focus protection because of the health officer, Matt Strauss. And we now know what the result was. They had 30% less COVID deaths than uh, the rest of Ontario. Okay, so can you please repeat that, Martin? So you're saying in a region, 
in southern Ontario called Haldham and Norfolk, the, the county, um, they did it differently as well. That's fascinating. Yeah, so they implemented focus protection uh, uh, and uh, they did better on, on COVID mortality. But of course, the major benefit is also they didn't get all the collateral public health damage. Okay, but as I recall, Martin, that um, that uh, medical officer of health for that region, uh, I believe his name is Dr. Strauss, was was thoroughly criticized and um, quite frankly, um, uh, you know, attacked personally on, on so many accounts for not going along with the way so many others did it. Is that correct? He took a lot of heat and he stood strong. And by doing that, he saved many people's lives. So he is so, uh, one of the heroes uh, of this uh, pandemic, one of the few. Okay, so for Jay and, and Martin, I know this sounds rather harsh, so I, I do want to qualify my question, but it seems like you wrote the the Great Barrington Declaration to state in many ways the obvious, that we needed to follow um, best practices of healthcare that are frankly wisdom over 100 years. And yet uh, so many authorities, not all, um, didn't follow that. And now looking back in retrospect, you were clearly right. It's almost like everything they told us, masks, lockdowns, um, the whole story about natural immunity, even the whole challenge now of understanding how helpful vaccines are, um, you know, the, the, the impacts on, on all of this, they were entirely wrong. Is there anything... Am I, am, I, am I being too harsh? Is that incorrect? Is there anything that they were right on? You know, I think uh, the, it's been disheartening for me uh, personally. I, I spent, you know, and Martin has also spent decades working in public health, working in medicine. Um, and the principles on which I decide whether, a, what, what the scientific, what's the correct scientific, uh, you know, sort of set of ideas is, is very simple. It's, there's, it's, it's evidence-based medicine. It's critical thinking. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, you, you look and see what's worked. You, you aim to, to uh, make public health decisions that respect the intelligence and autonomy of, of the public. Um, you don't make any decision that makes the lives of the poor, the vulnerable, uh, the working class any harder than it needs, than, than, than it already is. Um, I think all of those principles, I thought guided public health. And it was, it's been the shock of my life, David, to see all of those very basic ethical principles thrown out the window during the pandemic, wow. um, especially on I mean, evidence-based medicine. On issue after issue, the scientific and public health establishment abandoned evidence-based medicine on masks, on lockdowns. Uh, uh, it, is, it has been absolutely shocking to on school closures. It has been shocking to watch. Uh, the scientific establishment and the, uh, specific, specifically the public health establishment throw away um, this this deep wisdom that, that have taken you know a century to gain. So, so Jay, I think a lot of people would be shocked to hear what you're saying. I mean, you're you're a, a, a preeminent leader in in public health in the world, and so you're you're saying that like we heard the refrain time and time again let's follow the science but we didn't follow the science did we so what's a good example of that what what's a stunning example that people need to know about well there are like a few principles of public health that we have thrown out the window one is public health is not about one disease it's about all of health it's mm. not just about covid it's about 
cancer, cardiovascular, diabetes, mental health, and so on. So you can't just focus on one disease and ignore everything else, and that will deteriorate. And that's exactly what happened during this pandemic. All the focus was on COVID in a futile uh, attempt to get rid of it, which was never going to happen, but then doing so much damage to other aspects of public health. Another thing is that in public health, you have to look uh, view it long term. If you have a hurricane, which we do in the US, what you can do is you can sort of leave your home and hunker down for a few days. And then when the hurricane is over, you come back and you resume your normal life. Infectious disease outbreak doesn't work that way. If you have a pandemic, it's going to come. You can push it forward in time a little bit, but you cannot avoid it. You have to go through it. Exactly. Uh, so uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, countries were sort of uh, competing to see who could press down the COVID the most. But then they had it later instead, and they had the mortality later instead. So those are two fundamental principles of public health. Also, of course, public health is about everybody in society. I, I think that's well said, Martin. Um, so in this context, Martin, are you concerned that we've done irreparable harm to many societies, including Canada? Yes. Well, just take the school closings. Children need to go to school. To close the schools has effect, uh, effect on these kids for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. So that will be for decades and decades to come. And they're never going to get back that education that they lost. We know that if you have less education, you do less well in, in life uh, in terms of public health and many other things. So uh, that's not going to be... Uh, that doesn't show up in the mortality statistics because these are kids, they survive. Mm -hmm. uh, but it will show up in, uh, in uh, a detriment for the future. Uh, well said. What about you, Jay? How would you respond to that question? I mean, the, the, the harms to Canadians is absolutely uh, irreparable in, in, in so many ways. Uh, Martin already mentioned the, the all-cause the all excess deaths in Canada, which is, you know, I think it's like uh, nearly double the, the cumulative all-cause excess deaths through the pandemic for Sweden. Um, uh, the, the other things are, are, uh, for, for the, for the living, um, the other things are, 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 are still going to last for quite a long time. I mean, I think a lot of times during the pandemic, people have said, well, we have to trade the economy off so that we people can live. But in fact, the economic harm to Canadians is, has been tremendous. Um, huge numbers of businesses, especially small businesses, are closed now that otherwise would be. You have inflation. You have uh, high unemployment. Um, you, you have essentially like a debt overhang. Um, these have health consequences, David. These are not simply just mo money. These money, the money buys the, the capacity for people to live longer, healthier lives. Um, and, and recessions and um, inflation are all bad for the health of the public, especially the poor. Um, uh, the other, the other thing I'd say about uh, about the Canadian response, you know, the Canadian response was particularly cruel to the unvaccinated. Uh, it made it, uh, it so so it the the Canadian um, policy for the longest time was that if you were unvaccinated, you couldn't even travel internally within Canada on a plane or a bus. Um, that's that's unique. I mean, that's not not very many countries did that. Um, and as a consequence, a lot of lives were ruined. Even people who had already had COVID and recovered, and th thereby were actually at lower risk of spreading the disease to others than someone that was simply vaccinated and never had COVID, they also were subject to the same 
discrimination. Um, I, I, I'm like, I just try to put myself in the shoes of somebody like that. What, what they must think of public health, what must think of government that embraced discri irrational discrimination against them, destroying their life prospects for the, pro for the idea that you could stop the spread of a respiratory disease that, that was very clear from the very beginning that was not going to be possible to stop. Exactly. I, I think, Jay, you make a, an excellent point is that part of the irreparable harm is not only cascading through the economy and its impact on people's livelihood and, and indeed their health, but is ironically on the trust that we would have in public health officials now. Um, I, I hear this from a lot of people um, is heaven forbid that we would have a real pandemic and how we would then respond to instruction from public health officials. It's, it's really ironic, isn't it, Jay? It, it absolutely is. The, the collapse in trust in public health is nothing like I've ever seen in my professional career. And I honestly don't know how to get it back. I think a, a good first step would be an, a, an admission of, of catastrophic error on the part of current public health authorities. That, that, that they made mistakes. Uh, and frankly, I would ask that they would apologize to the people that they, that they harmed, that discriminated against. So many people fired um, because they didn't take a vaccine that they weren't convinced would be good for them. Well, why weren't they convinced? Because public health basically denied the basic principles of, of, uh, of, of evidence-based medicine, denied immunity after, that there was immunity after COVID recovery, um, overemphasized beyond what the evidence showed regarding the, the efficacy of the vaccine to stop transmission, uh, underplayed the, the possibility of vaccine harm. A lot of people were, were, uh, have looked at how public health behave, the pronouncements they've made, they compared it against the reality they see, and they're very different. And so it's no surprise they've lost trust. But it's bad for, for the public, for, the public uh, for public health to not be worthy of trust. Public health is very important for the health of the public, I think, David. Um, and so I, I think uh, it, it behooves public health authorities to work to re restore that trust. And, and that's going to require self-reflection uh, and, frankly, apologies from the leaders of public health. Exactly. Um, Martin, I did want to turn to you because you're a, a biostatistician. And um, you're very familiar with um, vaccine development. It seemed like during this whole last three years, the authorities have really weighed in heavily that the answer to um, this virus was really all about vaccines. W was that correct? Uh, vaccines was one of uh, was one important uh, measure against the against the pandemic. Uh, but public health got it completely wrong. Uh, the thing is that just to say that, that everybody should get vaccinated is just as scientifically flawed as saying that nobody should get vaccinated. So for older people in their 70s and 80s, they were very, very high risk uh, of uh, mortality from COVID, from dying. And uh, the vaccine saved uh, many lives among this age group. But that doesn't mean that if you've had COVID already, you already have better immunity than if you're vaccinated. So you don't need to have the vaccine. Uh, but and if you're young, if you're a child or young adult, you have also minuscule risk of COVID mortality. Uh, so you don't need a vaccine. Uh, so if you're old, even if there's an adverse reaction, a small risk of an adverse reaction to the vaccine is still worth it because the protection, because you have quite a high risk of dying from disease from COVID. But if you are a low risk from COVID, even a small risk from the vaccine will put the sort of benefit risk 
in the negative. It's, it's not worth taking. So uh, the public health establishment sort of completely got it wrong by saying that everybody needs to get this vaccine. And it actually killed people because uh, in the beginning of 2020, there was a shortage of these vaccines. And you could see uh, people on uh, Facebook and Twitter who were bragging about, like they were 30 years old, bragging about how they got the vaccine and how uh, virtuous they was for getting the vaccine. Even though that vaccine should have been used instead uh, for my uh, 85-year-old neighbor who uh, didn't get the vaccine at the time. So all uh, uh, people died because the, they didn't prioritize getting the vaccine to the old people. And instead, there was young people who was virtually signaling about getting the vaccine. Or they were forced to, if they were at the university, uh, there was a vaccine mandate. They were forced to get it, while those in the 80s were not forced to get it. So a lot of young people got it who didn't need it, while a lot of older people who would have benefited from it didn't get it. So that makes a lot of sense, Martin. Vaccines can be helpful, but target them to the most vulnerable, namely older persons with um, multiple health challenges. I, I think what's also fascinating um, to both of you, this is a question, is it relates to therapeutics. It's like the virus came along and the only answer was putting someone isol in isolation, even on a, a respirator. I remember when there was this huge push to manufacture respirators. And then there was no, uh, almost a, uh, uh, an incredible uh, prosecution of people who like as physicians that would be rec recommending other treatment alternatives. And this seemed bizarre to me because surely as a physician, you want to relate to your patient and, and they want to customize a, a particular solution to a health challenge. But it's like the government intervened in that kind of relationship. Is that a fair assessment, Jay? I, I think it's completely fair, David. I think um, like you know, take respirators. Uh, it's not a surprise that, 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 uh, that, that we had in some extent such high mortality early in the pandemic. We overused respirators, we used respiratory respirator protocols that were not standard um, and uh, very quickly, the World Health Organization recommended changing those respiratory protocols and the, Sorry, the mortality well, hold rate. Hold on, What do you mean by we use protocols or use of respirators that was not standard? What, what does that uh, mean? Like in particular, we used criteria for deciding whether patients should be on a respirator that would would normally not be used, right? So just just a, a low pulse oxygen does not automatically mean you should be on a on a ventilator. Um, you 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 use other you know other clinical criteria. Um, the way we manage patients with COVID now, and in, frankly, even in just summer of 2020, is vastly different than the way we manage them in March of 2020. Um, now that's that you can ex I mean, some extent you can excuse. It's a new disease, and people are don't really know what the right thing to do is. I can understand that's complete to me at least mm -hmm. understandable, right? Yeah. Um, What's less understandable is that there was, it seemed like almost a lack of interest in doing a rigorous evaluation of promising early treatments. Um, from, you know, from the very earliest days of the pandemic, people, there were doctors that were with lots of experience in, mm -hmm. um, uh, who were putting forward hypotheses about how ch relatively cheap drugs might be used hydroxychloroquine, which I actually now ex exposed think that probably didn't work. Um, but there were other more promising ones uh, like fluvoxamine. Mm -hmm. um, 
it, there were cheap ones that did end up being quite prominent, like dex dexamethasone for managing patients in a hospital setting. Um, that in the UK, there was a rapid randomized trial. The US NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, uh, has as its job to evaluate this evidence. Um, and they were very, very slow to do it. Uh, the randomized trial, for instance, for ivermectin uh, for in the US called Active 6 didn't actually complete until 20, what, 2023. Mm -hmm. um, what needed to happen, and this is, is a rapid evaluation of, ran, uh, of high quality randomized evidence of all of these inexpensive drugs conducted by organizations like the NIAID who have a job, that's their primary job. The scandal is not whether a particular drug worked or didn't work. We don't. We didn't know until the evidence starts to come in, right? The, only, the scandal is that our public health agencies, our scientific agencies, did not support rapid evaluation of these relatively inexpensive drugs, where, um, where, whereas, of course, it did support the rapid evaluation of, of the vaccine. It should have been an all-hands-on-deck kind of approach. Exactly. Uh, rather than the... Mm -hmm. That sort of push your all, all all your eggs in one basket kind of approach in 2020. It's 2020 that is the scandal. So you have both of you have been part of another group of eminent scientists called the Norfolk Group, uh, named after where you met. Um, basically, laying out a series of questions that need to be answered. So can you tell us more about those questions that we should be asking now as we look back and forward to the future? Um, Martin, did you want to talk about that? Yeah, so it's an 80-page document where we ask a whole uh, long list of questions and uh, it's available both in English and French uh, for, for, uh, so that everybody in Canada should have access to it. And we have divided it uh, about questions about the thing we talked about, about the, the therapeutics, about school closures, about other lockdown measures about testing, about the face masks and so on. And it's a bunch of questions that needs to be answered to, uh, to evaluate how we did during this uh, pandemic. Well said, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. Martin Koldorf. Thank you so much for being with us today in this far-reaching conversation about lessons learned from COVID-19. We thank you so much for your courage and your commitment to the truth and as we work, walk on this journey together, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having thank us. So that brings to a close our discussion today about COVID-19. We're so glad that you could join us and be sure to continue to keep in touch with The Frontier. Please uh, subscribe to our newsletter and check out our website at www.fcpp.org for more information. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.